0: And spent the next 24 years in the clandestine service, which was then known as the Directorate of Operations, working as a case officer. Uh, during most of this time, he was assigned abroad to posts in eight countries in Asia, Europe, and Africa during the Cold War. And in two of these foreign assignments, he was the chief of station, that is the senior CIA officer in country. Uh, Mr. Westman retired from the CIA as a highly decorated member of the elite senior intelligence service with an equivalent rank of major general. Upon retirement, uh, Fred entered the private consulting and recognizing the need for U.S. corporations to collect business intelligence and to protect their proprietary information. uh, He founded CTC International Group, Inc., Uh, The company became a recognized industry leader and has enjoyed more than 20 years of uninterrupted success. Fred sold CTC in 2016 and is now pursuing a third career devoted to literary pursuits as a novelist. He's the author of the nonfiction book CIA Inc. Espionage and the Craft of Business Intelligence and three novels, The Case Officer, Plausible Denial, and most recently False Flag, all published by Regnery Fiction. He will soon publish a memoir of his career in the CIA entitled The Last Cold Warrior. Fred is fluent French speaker and holds a BA in sociology from Oklahoma State University. And Fred will also be one of our featured speakers tonight at the gala uh, and has generously made time to be with us here this afternoon to talk about the future of the CIA. So please welcome Fred Russman.
1: I'll speak fast. <laughs> First of all, I'd like to uh, thank um, John Lansowski. Where are you, John? There you are right in front of me for inviting me here today and Aldona and and of course, Jim. Jim and I go back a long ways. I love this place. I'm not a big fan of academia. I think academia is in the toilet these days. From K through 12, we've got one problem, the unions. They're not teaching our children. And and even in our colleges and universities, they're teaching the wrong stuff and not teaching the right stuff, I think. I think one of the problems with academia today is that um, there there are far too many academics who have never left the womb of academia. They graduate from college and think, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now? So they get their master's. And then they graduate from the master's program and, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now? It's cold out there. It's, there's all these people out there. So then they get their Ph.D. Once they get their Ph.D., they teach. And the only thing they ever teach is what they've read from other people. But here at IWP, it's, it's, it's far different. Here at IWP, we have people like Jim, John Sano, a colleague of mine at the agency, who have actually done the work, and, and Aldona, who have had other careers. They've been out there. These are the people we need to teach. Somebody from the, somebody from, the, from academia trying to teach about intelligence who has never served in an intelligence service, which is secret, can't teach. They can't know, they can't know. When I joined the agency, it was a much, much different place than, uh, than it is today. Um, some good changes, some very bad changes. I'll leave that up to you. When I joined in 1966, All of the major positions in the agency, virtually all of them, were held by former OSS heroes. These were our best and brightest individuals in America. They were heroes. There was loyalty that went down, loyalty that went up, duty, honor, country. It was all there. We were trusted. There was no question about betraying the flag. It would never, never, ever happen. There was, there was just loyalty. There was loyalty. But things slowly began to change. And all of these people were in their 50s at the time. So they, they were senior. They're all, all the senior posts. So this is, the, this is the kind of atmosphere that I joined when I joined the agency in 1966. Um, but then things started to change. The first big change came when uh, James Schlesinger was appointed as the DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence. James Schlesinger didn't want the job. He didn't know about intelligence. He really only wanted to become secretary of state, which he later became anyway. And he decided that the old boy network, which was very much in force, was a bad thing. The old boys had to go. So he engaged in a purge of all of these, many of these, most of these OSS veterans. A lot of us at the bottom were very happy about this in a way because it opened up stations and bases and and divisions for us to move up into because there was a blockage there. But for the most part, we missed them. And it was a horrible blow to the agency. Morale in the agency plummeted. The secrecy veil that the agency worked under all but disappeared. At that time, we didn't have congressional relations. We didn't talk to Congress. We talked to the president. We didn't have any public relations. Uh, If a a journalist called the agency, there was no place for them to to talk. So they would call Richard Helms, whoever was director, and they'd ask him a question and he would say, no comment. That's what it was. No comment. We were a secret organization. We didn't talk about what we did at all. Not our successes, certainly not our failures. He lasted about a year and he was pushed out and then eventually, uh, not that long afterwards, uh, went to the Department of Defense and became our, our Secretary of Defense. And he was replaced by Bill Colby, one of those OSS veterans we all adored. I adored the man. I absolutely adored him. But he was a good Catholic, and he never told a lie. Never told a lie. And this openness that the agency experienced under Schlesinger was pushed even further, and Bill Colby couldn't handle it. So with all, these, with all this extra o- openness, we had something called the Church and Pike investigations, where they came, I'm sure you're all aware of it, when they came. And they were looking into all of the nooks and crannies of the agency and all of the dirty deeds that the agency had done over the years. And, and Bill Colby allowed this to happen. In fact, uh, Richard Helms, who was a very, very close friend of his, never spoke to him again after that. The openness and the the Church and Pike committees came, they came into the agency with dozens of 30-something lawyers sitting all of our senior officers down and interrogating them about all of the bad deeds that the agency did. Morale plummeted. The decline of the agency's operations plummeted because nobody wanted to do anything to get caught having a flap. Having a a success was one thing, but if you had a flap, that was much, much worse. One of the things that uh, John is very aware of and famous for is political covert action. He's written some excellent stuff on it. The best. China, for example, which is what John wrote about, is running this country through its own political action. America used to do, a CIA used to do political action. There was a huge room with all these desks. It was like a newsroom. And what political covert action is essentially is influencing governments to be more favorable towards the United States than to um, communism or or the opposite. And what we would do is we would write articles, press articles for different countries, journalists in different countries and place these press articles. During the church Pike committee meetings, they found this out and our press at the time said, wait a minute, we can't have that. We can't influence other countries politically with, with, with press placements, because if we do that, the press placements will be picked up by American press and then we'll push that story as well. And that, that's not right. So they stopped it. The agency was built on th- as a three-legged stool. Intelligence collection, intelligence analysis, and covert action as permitted by the President of the United States. They cut the leg off of the stool. It has never recovered. It has never recovered, which is part of the reason we have so many flashpoint wars all over the countries these days because we aren't in there influencing them in the proper direction. The next big blow to the agency came when Jimmy Carter got elected. He was a West Point, he was a um, uh, Annapolis graduate and he, prom- and he promoted his Stansfield Turner, who was one of his classmates at, the, at Annapolis to become the next um, CIA director. One of the first things he did when he got there, he was mostly a technocrat. Uh, He thought that human intelligence was not only not needed, but it was not the right thing to do. You shouldn't be monkeying with people's lives like that. So he stopped it. He sent the most ridiculous cable. Nobody from IWP would ever, in any position of authority, would ever permit this to happen which is why we need IWP. He sent a table to all stations and bases, which I read, which said, we shall no longer recruit venal spies. We will recruit only patriots. So no more giving them money. If they're working for money, that's bad. We're gonna get patriots. We're gonna get people that love America and ignorance, it's, it goes beyond ignorance. And then he sent his other, another West uh, Annapolis graduate, a guy named Rusty Williams, to all the stations and bases worldwide. I was in Hong Kong at the time, and I experienced this firsthand because I was going through a, a marriage split. His, his, he was told, Rusty Williams was told, some of these case officers are immoral, They've got a high rate of divorce, so therefore we have to cull them out. He didn't understand that case officers did indeed have a high rate of divorce because they worked hard. They were at, we'd work in the embassy all day long doing our cover job, and then we'd go out in, in nightfall and do our CIA work, or Agent Adeline, or what have you. And this caused a lot of problems with marriages, but he didn't know that. So he went along and he started another purge, a purge of case officers who had divorce problems. For example, I had been overseas the whole time, uh, from the, almost from the day one after finishing uh, my training overseas, one, one station after another. and. Um, Now I couldn't stay overseas anymore because I was was going through a separation. So we had to bring you back to America. My best friend in the agency in Hong Kong was at the same position, was in the same position. We both had to come back. I went to the farm to teach um, clandestine tradecraft, and he went to a a domestic station. It went down and down and down. And about a year later, Stansfield Turner had an epiphany and he said, wow, wait a minute. We actually need these case officers and we actually need human sources. I mean, after all, human sources are the only types of sources that can aver- can actually give you plans and intentions of the enemy. Technical stuff is great. They can see the tanks coming up to the border and you, you can hear all this th- holes, ears on poles. This is all good for what they're doing. But what they're planning, that comes only in the minds of a few. And that's why we need human, human uh, intelligence. So with, when morale was high, production was high. When morale was down, production fell. And the ultimate problem with all of that was that People started doubting their loyalty, the loyalty to the country, to the CIA. They didn't like it working there anymore. And so things started going downhill very fast. There were more purges under this Rusty Williams, as I said. In 1980, our first defection occurred. A guy named David Barnett was caught spying for the Russians out of Indonesia, case officer. He was number one, first one ever. In 1985, just five years later, we found Edward Lee Howard, heard of him, went to the USSR, defected, case officer. Sharon Skranich was a a OSA, an operational support assistant in Ghana, who was found sleeping with a Ghanaian case officer and giving information concerning the CIA? Aldrich James began his betrayal in 1985. And Larry Wu Tai Chi, a friend of mine, I was in the China program at the time, was uh, discovered spying for the Chinese. Gave him all of the case officers' names, including mine. So morale, mission, leadership went way down. In the 90s, the the wall collapsed. Government, Congress again thought, we're kind of obsolete, we're not needed anymore. And so, Morale sank even further. Uh, a series of revolving door CIA directors came and went. Um, budget cuts happened. A lot of us just bailed out, let me included. And uh, today the agency is a different different place from the time I was there. When 9-11 occurred, when 9/11 occurred, emphasis on human intelligence again plummeted because of budgetary reasons, and more paramilitary, obvious Afghanistan and whatnot took over, and they. So the agency really changed there, probably for, probably for the for good reasons. There were other bad reasons that the agency changed. And a part part of it was the diversity. Um, we started sending um, female case officers, for example, to places like uh, Saudi Arabia, where they couldn't drive or they couldn't go out without a man. And the Saudi um, agents didn't want to be sitting in a safe house with a woman. So the sensitivities in America, they're one thing. Sensitivities, but, but a foreign intelligence service, they have to be very conscious of the sensitivities of, of the country that you're in. Because we're trying, we need them. We're there to coerce them into working for us, giving us information, liaising with us, helping us, that's what we need to, so we don't need to go and insult them. So a lot of this stuff, to get back to the IWP. This is where you learn wh- so that mistakes like that never, ever happen. They should never, ever happen. Okay, you've got the CIA guy up here. You must have questions. I'm going to cut it off short so that I have some questions. I know that a lot of you would be interested in who shot Kennedy, and uh, all this. So let me open it up to questions
2: now. Yes, sir. I'd like to ask you, this, former CIA, and the, F- the other gentleman here from the FBI, I appreciate your being here. You know, going back to when I came to DC and Homeland Security was just established, as I recall, I can't remember who was. Pri- president when he said, if you don't get the CIA and the FBI to communicate, I'm going to fire both of the," Who was that? I don't remember. Did you remember? Maybe it's Bush. I don't know. Was it a Bush? I think I, it was Bush 1. Anyway, started uh, Homeland Security, let think. me ask you about the relationship today with regard to the cooperation and effort between the two agencies. And of course, now we've got Homeland Security, which was a reaction, I guess, to 9-11. And that was a Bush. Idea yeah, was yeah. The establishment of another agency, and that seems to be where America always goes. They want to establish another uh, another agency. They already had the agencies, but they weren't working together. Right. So I'm just curious what your observations would be about it today. And starting Homeland
1: H- Security. I'll, I'll get to the agency and FBI thing in a minute, but starting Homeland Security was probably a good idea to consolidate all of that. One that was not a good idea was the uh, National Intelligence Office. It started out. I was a member of the of the my my one single in the twenty four year career. I had one headquarters assignment, and uh, I was in Europe Division, and I was the chief of operations essentially there. And so I would sit in on the on the uh, there was a staff for for the the intelligence community. It was called the ICS, Intelligence Community Staff. And it it was run by a major general. At at the time I was there, it was Air Force. And had about a dozen people, including CIA and FBI and, and the other agencies. It never really had any clout because it didn't control any budgets. The Pentagon controlled the budgets of all of the agency, all of the agencies under command of DOD and CIA had its own budget, but the rest of the disparate intelligence agencies didn't. They all mostly got their budget from, from the, uh, the Department of Defense. So what happened was, since they didn't have any clout, all you could do is suggest things and they just say no or whatever. Um that then somebody came up, it was probably Bush, came up with the idea that we're gonna start a separate, to take away the, the two hats. The, the, the director of central intelligence was the director of central intelligence and the director of central intelligence agency. So they took the one hat away from him and gave it to another guy. And it was supposed to be a staff. It is now the size of the agency, it's huge. And they don't collect, they just I don't know what they do there's a staff but but it's a great big building downtown uh, in in, in uh, near Arlington and uh, it's it's crazy. The agency has always had a funny relationship with with the FBI, and it basically depended upon. The FBI officer and the CIA officer—how they got along. Um, I remember when I first first uh, joined, uh, there was uh, uh, Hoover was doing all of the agency's background checks, and one day he decided he wasn't going to do them anymore. So they got a couple of trucks, loaded up all these files, and dumped them on, the, uh, on Richard Helms's desk, and it, so. Yes, we got along really, really well on a personal basis. Probably uh, uh, institutionally, there's always been a lot of friction We don't have police power. The FBI does. We we collect information and we don't like our assets to get burned. The FBI wants to arrest people. Does that answer your question? I'm happy.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Outer James, through? yeah. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh,
2: are you familiar with the book? I assume you are, The Looming Tower. And is it true that the, uh, what, what the author alleged, which was the CIA was asked very specific questions by the FBI and they lied to cover their sources and not tell them where certain people were, who were in fact were, you know, running the operation to take down the towers. Is that true or is that a fiction made up by that author to sell I, books? I, I, I don't believe it.
1: The one thing, one thing about the CIA case officers, we were referred to as a reliable source in any intelligence reports. It is just a reliable source, period. That's the best. Take it to the bank. We never, ever lie to America. We lie like hell when we're overseas. We break into embassies. Maybe we don't do it anymore. I don't know. We break every rule under the books, or we used to. Nowadays there are more, there are about as many case officers in the agency today as there were when I entered on duty in 1966. Guess how many lawyers we have. We have lawyers in every major station and base, and what are they doing? They're saying, don't break any laws. Don't make, don't make any mistakes. Don't do this. That's what they do. But we, we as an agency would never lie to another American service, whatever. We don't lie. We live, there's a difference between living cover, having an alias. I had so many aliases. uh, I was Harry McSweeney more than I was Fred Rustman. (laughs) Your friendly Irish businessman. I had all the stuff. Um, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, in this course, this an idea of what needs to be
2: done to correct this mess. Can you uh, give us a, an idea in just a few words what needs to be done to correct this terrible mess we're in?
1: Go get back to basics. Get back to basics. Human source recruitment. That's what we need to do more of. Get away from the other stuff. Paramilitary is good. I mean, what we did in, in Laos, the largest paramilitary operation ever, what we did in Afghanistan, first in, this was agency, this was agency, it was wonderful what they did. In no time. Our officers with pallets of hundred dollar bills just give them away. That's how trusted we were. Nobody was saying you need to get a receipt from that Afghani that you were recruiting. That's that's what, that's what we need to get back to. We need to get back to the trust. We need to get the lawyers out of there. When when I joined the OGC, the Office of General Counsel, consisted of Larry Houston, who was a colorful OSS hero, a paralegal and a secretary, three people. That was OGC, with as many case officers as exist today. Everything else is bloated. Everything else is, and and far, far too many lawyers telling us what we can't do. We need to be overseas, we need to be breaking into embassies, we need to be getting what we need to protect this country in any way we can get it, and be honest with our people. Yes, sir.
3: Fred, thank you so much for a tremendous tour d'horizon of the agency's history. That was really remarkable. I'm wondering if you can touch on one uh, dimension of that story, and that is the CIA's role in counterintelligence. John Quattracki talked about the cost effectiveness and the strategic importance of offensive counterintelligence operations, most of which really need to be done overseas rather than here in in Washington by the Bureau, that means it's really a CIA function and maybe some military intelligence functions. Uh, But then there's also, you know, maybe you could comment on that. And then there's the question of um, how uh, CIA's counterintelligence went through a stormy period uh, with the Angleton affair and uh, the, the questioning of the veracity of his, one of his star witnesses, uh, the defector, Anatoly Galitsyn, uh, and, uh and all of that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the, the ending of the uh, reading of other people's mail and that sort of thing. Thank you.
1: Yeah, the, those famous things, gentlemen don't read other people's mail. You're right. <laughs> Statement. Oh, wow. Um, unfortunately, I don't know. I can't answer the question for, for now, because I've been out of. When you walk out of that front door, over that that uh, CIA shield, you re- really that's that's it. You don't. I don't see any more classified information. As far as I know, though, from colleagues and what have you, the, the CIA, the CIA function is not changed very much. We can't, uh, FBI uh, is better at it because most of the CIA function does take place here. It's people spying on us here, not so much uh, spying on us overseas. Uh, double agents, they, they come and they go. Um, but the but the FBI really has the, the major role for that. Uh, the agency has a more positive role in in collecting, in collecting the information and the covert action. Um, you know the days of, uh, of Angleton are are long gone. Um, we've had our problems, and uh, we work very very closely with the agency with the FBI on these problems because again. It's it's mostly domestic where you if it's if it's one of ours that's been suborned uh, he's he's ours he's he's American um, we of course vet assets that we recruit that's a CI function but it's it's a case officer function as well it's it's written into our DNA to be to question to test them to uh, polygraph them in some countries polygraphs work really well some people some countries doesn't work at all because it's a question of you have to believe it uh, the the polygraph works because of the the uh, the, the operator the operator is a, is an interrogator and and if you're a little bit scared that if you tell a lie you have different reactions they'll catch that on the on the machine but it's It's again, it's something that's very cultural. It uh, doesn't work for everybody else. I don't think I answered your question very well, but uh, that's all I can give you. Yes, sir.
3: Brett,
0: first of all, who did you get?
3: (laughs) (laughs) But if you don't care to talk about that, the, the success of the agency, the success of the military, the success of our entire government depends on the character of those who are serving does. How are we doing in terms of recruiting new officers into the agency? And once they're on board, can they be shaped? Can they be encouraged to have the kind of character necessary to do the hard work that you
1: did? When uh, that's a good question. When I joined, when I was going through the farm, uh, the training out at the farm as a, as a CTC, and I reflected on this, no one ever asked, "How much am I going to get paid? What are my benefits?" It, it, we were there for a different reason, all of us. We'd sit, we'd sit in the arena, and we'd get all kinds of. People from Washington coming, from, from headquarters coming and talking to us. Those kind of questions didn't get asked. When I was an instructor there, which was 10 years, 11 years later, all of the questions were, you know, what are my living conditions going to be like? What, how much money am I going to make? Do I get paid more when I'm in a, uh, overseas or in a bad post? It was all um, kind of me, 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 me. And I noticed that. I recognize that. I can only think that today it's worse. I know that the retention is is worse today. Um, and part of it, I don't want to offend any ladies, but part of it is when you recruit women, obviously, and men, into the CT program, more women don't stick around for the full 20 years than men so so there was a there was a financial reason to recruit more men has nothing to do with brain power or intelligence or anything like that, but it was there at that time nowadays that doesn't exist. I attended recently a um, 75th anniversary to the agency at headquarters. And I, and the director spoke, um, he was supposed to have a Q and A after, and I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask him. And as an SIS, I got to sit up front, so I was going to get answered. He didn't take questions, but the, but the main accomplishment that he may mentioned was the diversity Of the the workforce. That's the main accomplishment. And that shouldn't be, I don't think. Jersey's good. Don't get me wrong. But on merit. Merit, 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 merit. My first boss when I went to Paris was a woman. She, she we all had pseudonyms when we entered the agency. You, you, one of the first things you do as a new CD is you go and you get your pseudonym. Mine was Clayton H. Morsella. Um, <laughs> the guy that was in front of me got Rufus H. Takata. So I, I was almost Japanese. The woman that I worked for, her pseudonym was Edward G. Fatsy. Edward G. Fatsy. She had a male pseudonym. They didn't have female pseudonyms. So that's a little silly. But... Uh, but that's the way things were back then. So, yeah, we've come a long way, and it's a good thing. It's, a good, it's a really a good thing. But uh, let's not do it over the board. And again, yes, sir?
3: We have time for one more question. Okay.
2: First of all, thank you for your comments and sharing all the insights about the agency. Fascinating.
3: Um, what, one of the questions I have is, we live in a world
1: where technology has, you know, just penetrated every aspect of life and it is growing so rapidly. We now have artificial intelligence. Does all of this technology evolution help the CIA or does it make it that much more challenging? Um, really both. Um, <laughs> I, when I joined the agency, all the case officers had manual tape, typewriters. The, uh, the secretaries had the IBM Selectrics. It was really terrific. When the Wangs came in, those our first computers were word processors. There were Wangs. And um, they had to be in a sealed, uh, vaulted area because of the emanations that they would Set off, so we had to be careful. Um, but nowadays, it's almost paperless, and it's pretty darn secure, and it's a good. And it, it, it. But for handling agents, for handling agents, I would still stick with the old dead drops and chalk marks. And even even when I was active, when the technology was not as overpowering is maybe the word as it is today. Uh, I would fun with the uh, technical services guys and say, yeah, I know it worked on the bench, but as soon as you give it to an agent, it doesn't work anymore. And so the human touch, uh, if an agent gets caught, oops, I'm sorry. If an agent gets caught with spy gear, anything, in his house, he's dead. So my, when I was handling agents, my thing was never, ever give them anything that would be compromising, and all technology is compromising. So that's the, the bad side of it. Dead drops are really good. <laughs> that's it. I getting the hook. Okay. Thank you. Oh yeah, great.
0: Yeah,